am Rebecca Rison here with Jeremy Roberts, and we'd like to welcome you to the Chit Chat. Today we have two special guests who are here to talk to us about fandom and furries. We have Dr. Courtney Plant and my brother-in-law, Dr. Stephen Rison. Let me tell you more about our special guests. Dr. Courtney Plant is an assistant professor of psychology at Bishop's University. His research interests focus broadly on identity, perception, and immersion processes in fantasy-themed contexts. This includes research on the functions of fantasy engagement, the construction of fantasy-themed cells, and immersion into digital media. He's perhaps best known for his research on fan cultures, having spent more than a decade studying furries, fans of media featuring anthropomorphized animals, anime fans, and bronies adult fans of My Little Pony. Dr. Stephen Rison is an associate professor of psychology at Texas A&M University Commerce. He teaches classes related to social psychology, intergroup relations, and multicultural diversity. His research interests include topics related to personal, such as fanship, threats to interpersonal public identity, and social identity, like fandom and global citizenship. Welcome to the show, how are you guys doing? Not too bad, it's good to be here. Oh, good. good, good to see y'all. Thanks so much for joining us. We're excited to talk to you about your research. Um, but first, before we stop, start talking about research, let's talk about your day-to-day -day lives as professors. What does your typical day look like? Uh, do you mean pre-COVID or post-COVID? They're very <laughs> different beasts. <laughs> yeah, right. It, any and all of the above. Yeah, I know things have kind of changed a little bit since COVID. Yeah, I guess pre-COVID, it was a lot more of, uh, uh, for me at least, it was a lot of teaching. So you teach anywhere from, from two to four hours a day. Uh, and then when you're not teaching, you're either prepping classes, marking, or uh, for, for Stephen and I, we do a lot of uh, authoring a paper. So usually passing back and forth a draft of something or uh, putting something through an ethics board or, or writing something up for publication. So usually, so, usually something's on the go uh, research-wise, I guess. Uh, since COVID has started, it's a lot more recording lectures and instead of uh, teaching classes. And um, yeah, it, it does free up a little bit more time, I suppose, for, for writing. Although that's also because it's the summer right now. We'll see if, uh, if that holds when it's fall. I don't know what your experience has been, Stephen. Pretty much the exact same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, things are definitely interesting. COVID-wise, so keeping busy, and then uh, having looked at how many articles you've published, it is very impressive. You must keep very busy with all this researching and teaching, helping students. Um, let's talk about your research. Let's start off with talking about your fandom research specifically. What is fandom exactly? And uh, tell us about your research in that area. Sure. So, uh we make a distinction in the research between what we call fanship and fandom. So fans are people who, who like something, typically media or sporting events, or you, you enjoy something and it becomes a part of your identity. Uh, fanship is that the extent to which you like that thing, the extent to which you identify um, with that passionate interest in something, right? You can really, really like a particular show and thus be a fan of it. Fandom, by contrast, is the, the shared experience of that with a community of like-minded others. So you can really like a particular show, but if you do it in your basement with no one else around, you'd be high in fanship, but low in fandom. Fandom is really all about that, that shared viewing, that shared experience. Uh, you, know, you, you go to conventions together, you, you 
talk about and discuss the, the most recent episode of that show you really like. And so we're, as social psychologists, we're particularly interested in that, that communal group facet of, of what it means to be a fan of something, right? So not just uh, watching it at home, but what happens when you put a bunch of fans together in a community? Um, what does that look like? And it's particularly interesting to us because fan culture is one of those things that is often uh, trivialized or overlooked, not taken seriously because it seems like such a, a silly topic, right? Oh, people who like that particular TV show, it's, it's not real, so why should I pay it much heed? And yet what we start to see in our research is that the fan groups you belong to are just as important and meaningful in providing that sense of community and social supports as our church groups, as our work groups, as you know, the, the friends and family that we surround ourselves with. So it's easy to trivialize, but uh, it's, it's just as important to, to fans, that fan group, as you know, one's church group would be to them or one's work friends would be to them. So we, we find, it, find that value very interesting to, to study. I don't know if Stephen wanted to add to that. Um, and you could also think about almost everybody is a fan of something. And it's a, when you look in psychology, it's typically only about sport fans, which makes sense because sport is ubiquitous. You can walk down any major street and you'll see a logo of a sport team. You open the newspaper, there's the sport section. You watch the news, there's sports. Um, so it's everywhere, but there's a lot of different fandoms out there that you would not have thought about. And piggybacking on Nuka's, we find that fans say their fan community is more important to them than their local neighborhood communities. Mm. In other words, that for a lot of people, these fan communities are deeply connected to who they see themselves as being as people. So they're important. Oh, yeah. Connects with their identity, that kind of thing. Mm their social circumstances. Have you found some things like uh, just knowing how much you publish, you've done a lot of studies on, on things. Are there some studies you'd want to kind of chat about further just in terms of what your findings have been and interesting things that you've noted over time? Um, I mean, we could, we could do an entire two or three hour podcast. I'm sure <laughs> just on us asking a scholar to talk about their research is, is opening a dangerous can of worms. Um, <laughs> so, Cole's notes version, I guess I can talk about some of the more recent stuff we've been doing. Mm -hmm. um, so what's, what's holding our interest now? Uh, I'm particularly interested in uh, elements of gatekeeping and elitism in fan groups. So what is it that uh, um, you know, when, when people first join these groups, occasionally they're hit with this wall of uh, feeling intimidated by, oh, well, you're, you're not a real fan of this particular band or you're not a real fan of this particular show and you don't, you don't know enough to be considered a real fan. And some people draw these arbitrary lines in the sand about what does and does not make a person a fan. And we're kind of fascinated by um, that whole process of what, you know, at what point does a person become, you know, do you consider them to be a fan and why do people uh, gatekeep? Usually you have to find some, some way to get into a fandom yourself. Sometimes you have to suffer to get into that fandom in the first place. Uh, so why would you foist that on someone else why would you sort of burden them with that or saddle them with that and uh are there some functions to it right when you're once you're finally in this group and part of this group and it's a part of your identity is there some function to making it a more exclusive group if you're building your self-esteem on this group is there some function to uh, making it very exclusive and saying we only let the best in right or is there function to uh 
uh, excluding people who might be a threat to your group. Maybe someone who's going to make your group look bad. Maybe you want to draw a line around them and say, well, no, they don't count as part of this group because they're going to make us look bad. So uh, I, I'm particularly interested right now in that notion of elitism and gatekeeping and mm -hmm. um, some of the, the, conflict that can create within fan groups so that's that's what i'm doing right now uh, amidst the the sea of other things that we do yeah sounds like interesting stuff for sure mm -hmm. i guess what i'm working on is at the moment what i'm working on is learning more about otaku which are which I did not know this, but they um, it originally started otaku nowadays for Americans. It would be uh, somebody who is very much into or a very big fan of anime and manga. Um, and it started out in Japan. It was written about in an erotic magazine about it was an essay talking about people who are just enthusiasts like geeks or nerds. And then it got tied to uh, a serial killer who happened to have a bunch of manga in their apartment. And then the term otaku became, had negative connotations because, well, this serial killer was an otaku. And then it moved over to America and it became more normalized because American fans uh, repurposed it to just mean a person who's really big into anime. And so looking at otaku versus non-otaku anime fans. And so that's what I'm working on right now. Interesting. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. So this fan. Okay. So if I like Starbucks, does that make me a fan of Starbucks or does that make me an addict? Because I, I know for sure I go to, <laughs> but there's a community at Starbucks, right? You go, you see kind of the same people. You're like, Oh, my friends are here. Anyhow, bad joke, but no, I'm, I'm totally a fan of Starbucks, but it kind of goes into addiction. So are there, Oh, yeah. it, it, it's, a, it's a good question because uh, we get this a lot, actually. So when we when we study furries, for example, people say, well, my my grandmother watched that film Zootopia. Oh, my God, is my grandmother a furry? Right. Mm -hmm. And it gets into this really interesting question of where, where's the, the boundary between fan versus just liking a piece of media. Right. Right. And the way I've often described it to people who are afraid of, oh, have I accidentally become an anime fan? Have I accidentally become a furry? Uh, what I always say is that the label of fan is a self-imposed label. You typically put it on yourself. And for us, at least, the difference between I like this show versus I'm a fan of it is do you like it enough that it is a useful label to allow others to better understand you, right? So I like chocolate. Chocolate is, is tasty to me. But I would never walk up to someone and say, hey, I'm Dr. Plant. I'm a chocolate lover. <laughs> because what, by, by, by telling you that, you're inferring things about me. You're saying, okay, so he spends a considerable amount of his time and money on this endeavor. He hangs out with other chocolate lovers. He, he, he spends his time going to chocolate lovers conventions. And, and so if that's not the case for you, if this is not telling you a lot, telling others a lot about your social life, what you spend time and money on, um, then you probably wouldn't be considered a, a fan of it. But if you're, if you're, love of Starbucks was such that you've got Starbucks merchandise in your house. You, you, all of your social events and gatherings happen at Starbucks. Your friends are people who work at Starbucks. You've worked at Starbucks before. Then you might say, yeah, I'm, I'm a fan of this particular, you know, this particular brand <laughs> as you, as you well. show off your, your Starbucks mug. <laughs> so yeah, I, I would say in that case, if, if, if 
what I always say is if telling someone this about you is giving them a lot of information about you, mm -hmm. then you might be considered a fan of it. Okay. Oh, okay. That, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. And just thinking about- And, and that's what corporations want. They want that, you to be fans of their things. Right. Yep, they want you to be passionate consumers who share that love, which is why you see, you know, why you see Twitter accounts and why they encourage you to, to, to share these, these things and to, to identify. They really want you to, to just treat it like a, a social group that you belong to because um, that, that breeds loyalty. Yeah. yeah. It's like when Starbucks does their new cups every season. You know, we've got several yeah. Starbucks here on campus. And whenever we go to Starbucks and see, oh, which ones do I not have? And then you collect them, Rebecca. <laughs> that's that's fan consumption behavior, right? That's no difference than uh, a comic book collector saying, "Oh, the new Superman comic came out. I have to right. run out and get it." Right? Yeah. Oh yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. That's a helpful there, for me. Are there I'm gatekeepers in Starbucks? Are there Starbucks fan gatekeepers who are, you're not a real Starbucks fan unless you know the secret menu? Hmm. That's interesting. Wow. That's a good question. I mean, there is someone in our office, I won't say who, that says espresso, like with an X instead of an S. So I, I give that person kind of a hard time about that. But I know a hard time about that. <laughs> I would imagine that uh, probably, though, if you go to Starbucks and you say espresso instead of espresso, then they'll still take your money. Yeah, of course, they're going to take your money. <laughs> it's, it's funny you mentioned this though, because in in fan groups, there are uh, uh, one of the things we study is is the significance given to these little behaviors, these little identifying behaviors, these norms that are created uh, within these fan groups. And so sometimes very tiny little distinctions like this are are flags or ways to kind of signal that hey, I'm 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 genuine. I'm a real fan. Uh, a wonderful example is. Uh, with some of the work we do with furries and they wear those, those giant mascot type suits a, a furry, a real furry can, can pick out a fake furry suit from a mile away. They can look at it and say, that's not a furry suit. That's not owned by a furry. You can just tell from the aesthetic. It's not a furry did not make it. A furry would not wear that. That is a, a mascot costume or that is a, a company's costume. Um, we see in, in other fan groups as well in the, my little pony fandom, right? It's uh, uh which character is your favorite? It supposedly tells a lot about a person. And these, these you might think, well, they're all just these multicolored, colorful friendship horses, right? Mm -hmm. Why do these things matter? But these tiny little indicators say a lot about a person, <laughs> especially within these fandoms. They, they get, have all the significance attributed to them. I'm sure Stephen has a bunch of examples from the anime fandom, these tiny little things like, you know, like what, what, what decade did you, you know, what, when you mentioned your favorite animes, what decade uh, does your favorite anime come from might say a lot about you or might kind of uh, out you as a longtime fan versus a, uh, a wannabe fan, for example. Yeah. And what your favorite anime are and who your favorite characters are. Yeah. And a lot also, of like, even for music fans. Oh. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. Um, a lot of that goes with music too. You know, like if somebody says, yeah. Oh, this is my favorite song and it's the most popular song right now, but you don't know the other music that's on the CD and you go to a concert and you're just standing there like, oh, okay, whenever they're going to play the most popular songs, that's when I'm going to get like into it. And it's like, no, you're not really 
a true fan or a true supporter of that person's music, just knowing what the most popular song of the current time is. Yeah. yeah you took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say, you need to get this among music fans when they say, oh, who's your, you're a fan of this band, but what's your favorite album from them? And if right. you give the wrong answer, God forbid, you're not a real fan of them. You're right. a poser, a wannabe. Yep. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, this is, this is fascinating. And it, it helps me to know too, like just the whole process, this can really stretch to a lot of different areas I would imagine. Mm -hmm. So there's musicians, um, furries, there's, I mean, people can be a fan of a, a lot of different things. Pretty much. Yeah. In our, in our own work, I mean, Stephen could probably tell you better than I could. We sort of categorize it into to different categories of so media fans, music fans, sports fans, like, uh, I can't remember the category we call it, like crafting or builders. Um, obvious. Pardon? Hobbyists. So oh, like hobbyists. scrapbooking. Hobbyists, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. Motor bike riding and building. There's yeah. so many of these. Mm -hmm. I, I saw a convention the other day for slime, you know, the stuff the kids play with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like oh. slime. They have a whole convention for that. That's what's wonderful about this rabbit hole of studying fan cultures too, is the more you get into it, there's so much interconnection between these fandoms. You start off in the science fiction fandom and pretty soon you're into the, the, the furry fandom, you're into the, the science fantasy fandom, you're into the, the Firefly fandom, which gets you the Joss Whedon fandom, which gets, you know, it just, it's this, this, this giant interconnected mesh of different interests that overlap with one another so much. It's, it's a wonderful little rabbit hole to find yourself going down. Right. But uh, to, to, to go back a point, what's so interesting about all these different fan groups and something that Stephen and I have, have seen in our work is that despite the fact that superficially the content of all these fan groups is, looks so different, from a psychological perspective, the underlying motives of fans are very similar to one another. Fans are, are fans for many of the same reasons, whether you're a fan of the insane clown posse or My Little Pony. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So are there cases of like, in fandom I usually think of in a positive way, you know, like being a fan and someone's enthusiastic, they uh, really care about whatever that particular pastime is or hobby or in some cases person, right? Because if it's uh, if they're a fan of uh, a musician, then they're a fan of their music, but also maybe what they represent. Um, are there cases of like fandom gone wrong? Yeah. So take, take any interest or, or any behavior really and, and run it to its extreme and you start to almost by definition when we call it extreme, it's, it's usually maladaptive. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the work we did a few years ago uh, based on my work on, on fantasy research, was showing that there's what we call positive fantasy engagement and negative fantasy engagement. So positive fantasy engagement is when when you're getting benefits out of it. So you're 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 being creative. You're getting you know this this interest is allowing you to interact with other people. It's amuse. It's inspirational for you. It's fun for you. Um, the 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 dark side of it is when you really start to um, almost blur the line between fantasy and reality or when you start to, it starts becoming less about fun and more about addiction. Um, so uh, I sometimes use the example of video gaming, right? So you can play a video game for a fun little bit of escapism after, after your hard day at work, or you can play World of Warcraft for 70, 72 hours straight uh, because you don't want to think about how you can't pay the bills next month, right? 
the, the latter is certainly far, it's being done for, for worse reasons. It's being done more maladaptively. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess what I would say is if you, if you notice yourself engaging in your hobby and it's now more of a chore or a task than something you're doing for fun, if you can't just walk away from it, um, when it stops being fun, then you may be talking about a, more like an addiction or more of a, a, a dependency on it. And that's, that's when we started to get into that, uh, that bad side of things. That coupled with, again, the blurring of fantasy and reality. So when you get into things like celebrity stalking, for example, mm-hmm. um, you know, people who, who create these, these, form these parasocial relationships with celebrities and they believe, oh, I, I, my favorite actor from a soap opera they know me personally because I, I, I watch their show every day and I form this, this deep relationship with them. I'm going to show up at their house one day, right? And, and, and propose to them. That's, you know, you're, you're starting to lose touch with reality there. And, and that tends to be far more the uh, uh, exception rather than the rule. We're talking about like the one or two extreme, one or two percent of extreme fans there. Uh, certainly not the, the majority, although because the word fan is sort of rooted in, rooted in, the term fanatic people often overestimate the the zeal of fans yeah and you mentioned it just a minute ago um but didn't go into some detail but so from fandoms to furries what are furries and what research are you doing for this community or to learn more about this community yeah, so I, I guess to, to, to back to, I, I've used the term furry a few times, I guess, and folks mm-hmm. may not know. There's a lot of bad definitions of what a furry is. Um, a furry, by definition, is a person with an interest in anthropomorphized animal media. So that's a big $20 word. It just means uh, any media where the characters are humans with animal traits or animals with human traits. So if you've got a dog that's walking and talking and doing human things, we're probably talking about uh, what might be considered furry media. So everything from Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse to uh, BoJack Horseman, or you know, there's, there's a whole slew of shows right now uh, featuring walking, talking animal characters. That's that's typically what furries are are fans of. And um, yeah, the the work we've done started out, I guess, uh, this point over a decade ago now, um, where one of our colleagues, Dr. Kathleen Gerbasi who was really instrumental in starting this research, uh, she started off tackling misconceptions people had about furries. So this is sort of human tendency when we see behavior we don't understand, there's a tendency to come up with an explanation for it. We have to explain it. We, we need an explanation. And when it's really weird behavior, we need a really weird explanation. So when someone is doing something that we don't understand and it's really weird, we think, well, it's they're crazy or it's some weird sex thing. That's mm-hmm. kind of our default assumptions. And people were doing this with furries. Oh, why is this person watching these, these weird shows? Why is this person dressing up as this animal character? Is it a, a weird fetish thing or are they crazy? And that was sort of the, the, the assumption that people were making at the uh, sort of the early 2000s. And a sort of string of popular media presentations of furries were really unflattering to them and sort of just assumed these things without really doing their research. And so she went out of her way to sort of test them, like let's be scientists and let's actually go to a convention and just see if any of these things hold water. And as it turns out, you know, they, they really don't hold any water when you test them. Um, and then from there, it's just sort of branched off. We're now a 
sort of multi-person team, each of us coming from slightly different theoretical perspectives. And we ask a variety of, of questions based on sort of our own research interests. So I studied uh, a lot of group dynamics. I study fantasy and fantasy identities. Mm-hmm. So you know, when you play a Dungeons and Dragons character or you go live action role playing, when you daydream about yourself as a, you know, what could you be like? How does that change you? And in the furry fandom, you have a bunch of people who create these, these characters, these avatars called personas, furry personas that represent them, right? So my, my character is a walking, talking cat who is super smart and can shoot fire out of his hand. What does that say about you? What is that, uh, you know, what, what, what are you idealizing in that? You know, is he a smarter, faster, better looking version of you? And how does that change you by interacting with other, pers- other people as that smarter, better looking, funnier version of yourself. Is that good for your self-esteem? Does it boost it? Does it help you feel more confident? Does it allow you to build social skills? So that's sort of the, the approach that I've taken to studying it. Um, Steven can talk more about his approach to it and, he, and he's got his own questions for why he mm-hmm. studies it. Yeah, I do uh, more of the social identity theory um, and personal and social identity. So for example, Courtney is talking about personas and um, it fits nicely with uh, social identity theory, which says we all have different identities. Um, For example, the professor identity or student identity or brother um, identity. And we go through our day and we switch among these different identities. And each one of them has a fuzzy interconnected cluster of values and beliefs and emotions associated with each of them. Um, and so what furries have been doing with their personas is they create this whole new identity mm-hmm. that they can then switch between. So within the, the furry fandom, they're this persona and in the everyday world, they're Joe or Jack, whatever their individual um, identity and what's interesting, because social identity theory would say that when you're in this identity and then you switch, everything about you could potentially switch if the two identities are very different. So, for example, we did a study where we measured the personality of sport fans. So we got a bunch of sport fans together and we said, well, okay, think of yourself and going to the grocery store and rate your personality. And then think of yourself as a sport fan and rate your personality and the personality changed. So they became uh, less conscientious, less agreeable. And when you think about that, that fit fits with the stereotype of a sport fan who is disagreeable. Um, and so the, what furries are doing is they're creating this idealized with the persona idealized version of themselves, um, which is for example, more outgoing. So their personality changes. What was it? I think that was on point. Yeah, no, no. And, and, and it's worth pointing out too how, how you can't understate just how um, surprising that is. So if you're a personality researcher, there's this idea that your personality is, is kind of consistent, kind of set in stone. Almost by definition, personality is supposed to be this is who you are from situation to situation to situation. And what's been sort of surprising is to find that just just by changing the context you're imagining yourself in, uh, you can get dramatic shifts in a person's personality. You can, and we see it all the time in, in fandoms, the furry fandom, 
you have people who say, well, in my day-to-day life, I'm very quiet and mild-mannered, but when I'm around other furries and I, I'm in my fursona, uh, I'm the life of the party. I'm outgoing. I, I, I tell jokes and I'm friendly and gregarious. Um, not something you would expect if we just had one solid set in stone personality that we carried with us from situation to situation. And it's, what, it's a good example of one of the ways where studying the fandom helps us learn more about everyone in general, right? It may seem in many cases like we're just studying furries, but we're learning about furries and these group dynamics mm-hmm. tells us about other groups as well, right? So what we're learning about furries tells us about, well, how do professors switch from professor mode to, to husband or wife mode to family person mode to... Right. Yeah. And one thing we like to do with the chit chat is go back to where y'all first started in your field. So one question we always ask is, did you always want to be a psychology professor when you grew up or did you want to do something different? And then paths kind of changed whenever you took a class that piqued your interest or something while you were in college. Yeah, I, I uh, started going into the university wanting to be, uh, uh, I was actually pre-med before I switched to uh, psychology. So psychology was just that that silly option that I took to fill arts credits uh, amidst all my genetics and, and, and you know, biology courses. So I didn't take my first psych course till my second or third year. And instantly I fell in love with it. I, I just completely, after one, one, one course, intro psych, I just up and abandoned my entire pre-med career <laughs> and uh, switched majors and, and never looked back. Uh, frankly, I, I, I just threw myself headfirst into psychology, absolutely loved it. Um, and yeah, is, is, I, I did a couple of years of cognitive psychology, which is sort of how the mind works, and got really bored of that after my thesis. Uh, I spent two years figuring out that things that look the same are hard to tell apart mm-hmm. and decided that maybe that was boring. And uh, I became enamored with social psychology, which was all about, it was a very applied field. It was very big on solving practical real world issues, right? War, discrimination, prejudice. Uh, you know, these are, these are things that plague the world right now. So how do we take the things we learn in a lab and then go out there and try to fix the world with them? Right. So I very much like that approach. And so I went to grad school for, for social psychology. I was a bit of the weird one in that my older brother showed me a video of the Milgram shock experiment, which if, if you do not know what that is, you should YouTube it. Um, but it, it, after, when I saw that video, it was like, this is what I want to do. <laughs> this is the area the shock of study. People. <laughs> <laughs> and so in high school, I knew exactly I wanted to be a social psychologist. So in college, I'd, hung around the social psychology professors as much as I could. Okay. So how did you get started in research then? Did you take a class where you had to do research or was it just something that you saw other people doing and you wanted to be a part of it as well? Um, I think early on, most psychology, not all of them, I don't want to speak for the whole field, but I think most psychology students, when they first get into psychology, they're usually drawn to the clinical counseling part of it. Uh, just because, I mean, that's the, the biggest division by far in psychology is that counseling, clinical application stuff. And I think when I first got into the field, I thought, okay, well, that's probably what I'm going to do because that's, that's what I figured the field was about. 
Um, and I very quickly realized by the time I was in third or fourth year undergrad that uh, I was less of a sit on the couch and tell me your problem psychologist and more of a put people in boxes and poke them with sticks psychologist. Uh, I really couldn't imagine a life where I was getting paid to listen to people complain about their problems. I, I have friends for that. So um, I figured uh, I'd rather, yeah, do that. And I, I realized that if I wanted to get a career in the field, uh, your, your two choices really are uh, do, do therapy, clinical stuff, or do research. And so I, I moved quickly into the, the research side of things and, and never really looked back. Sure. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd always assumed to be a social psychologist, you had to be doing research. Yeah. <laughs> so, so as an undergrad, I did a study where, um, the, at, where I was living at the time in Santa Cruz, California. There was a Bank of America. Oh, I don't know if I'm supposed to say brand names on here. There was a bank. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they had two ATMs. And so what I did was I hired some other students um, to stand in a line at one of the two ATMs. So one of them was empty, no line, and the other one had a line. And then I'd sit at a coffee place a little bit away and record, well, did they get into my line or did they go to the empty ATM? And, and in other words, did they conform to this non-stated thing that there's a line here, the, the other one must be broken. And about, it got published, thankfully. And now, <laughs> But and it was I things like that. that loved. Gone from there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, it's it's wonderful being a social psychologist because it's it's if you ever watch like candid camera or, or prank shows, so many of those the, those pranks are are built upon psychological principles, often social mm -hmm. psychological principles, right? There are norms in place, and when you violate those norms, you catch people off guard, and, and a lot of the humor comes from that. And there have been entire psychology experiments done, taken, essentially inspired by these sorts of prank shows. There's, there's a paper called The Amazing Transmogrifying Researcher, which is based on the old switcheroo. You, uh, you have one researcher in the room doing a study, and then halfway through the study, they duck behind a filing cabinet and switch out with someone else entirely. And the whole point is to see, does the participant know and behave differently when you've switched the researcher entirely? And um, you know that, that 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 whole idea is 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 grounded in in humor. I think these pranks all involve violations of social norms. So I think that I, I always think that some of the best psychologists have an appreciation for comedy and/or would be fantastic comics. So yeah, for example, Mil Milgram did a great one where Milgram shock experiment. Milgram also did a great one where in New York City, I think it was. He had a, a very the size of people who just looked up into the sky and he, he counted how many people would come along and then also look up in the sky. I was like, that's an awesome study. <laughs> Sorry. No. Um, oh, yeah. What advice would y'all give to people who would potentially want to go into research and learn more about what you're doing? How would you tell them to get started in the process? Um, so I, I guess to, to answer the very specific question first, if you want to know more about what we're doing in general, if you go to, to furscience.com, F-U-R science.com, uh, that's where all of our research is, it's where our contact information is, where you can see, um, the, all the findings from what we do. Uh, more generally speaking, if a person were, were considering getting into social psychology more broadly or into research more generally, 
uh, my advice would be uh, find something you like that you're genuinely passionate about uh, and make sure you're doing that because if you're not doing research that you're passionate about and that you love, it is going to be an absolute slog. Um, and I mean, you got to think when you go to grad school, for example, whatever project you're working on, you might be working on it for five, six, seven years before you see fruition, before it becomes a published paper and a line of research. And uh, if, if you're bored to tears by it after six months, it's, it's going to be a very long and miserable uh, experience. It was uh, a big deal for me to uh, commit myself, I guess, early on in my career to, to yeah, I'm going to study weird things and I'm going to get sort of branded as a weird researcher who studies weird things. And I was fine with that because it was research that I ultimately was passionate about. So I, I, I can do this for very little money. I can do this and, and you know, get mocked and sort of poked fun at for having weird research interests uh, and endure long hours of data entry and, and whatnot because I love it, right? It's, it's, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. So that, that passion and something that you really feel strongly about has to be there. And if you're an undergraduate, I would suggest looking at uh, whatever the department that you're interested in, emailing some professors and asking if they have a lab and then join that lab. Yeah. 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 And uh, speaking of undergrad, uh, we always like to ask our guests too, what undergrad was like for them. So paint us a picture as to what your freshman year in college was like. Oh dear. <laughs> so this, That's what it starts off as. Everybody's like, okay, here we go. <laughs> um, well, so, so I guess this dovetails nicely with some of the research we've done. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things we've discovered about furries uh, is that furries have a, a, they're about twice as likely to have a history of being, I'm sorry, about 50% like, uh, more likely to have had a history of being bullied or picked on or ostracized uh, for, for being different, for being unusual. And uh, one of the drives to do the furry research is the fact that I, I am a furry. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was studying something I'm very passionate about. And my first year of university was very much sort of a period of self-discovery for me. It was me uh, coming to terms with the fact that I was, I had bizarre interests that the, a lot of the friends that I had around me um, Oh, you got to kind of grow up and get out of that. You're you're kind of an immature weirdo, and you need to to stop stop having this childlike interest and what you know become a fan of a real thing like sports or something, right? Um, so yeah, it was it was kind of an awkward period of of sort of social discovery for me. Uh, I learned just as much I think about myself outside of the classrooms as I did uh, in the classroom, and so I would say it was a, a period of great transformation for me. Um, really struggling to figure out sort of who I was and where I fit into the world. Um, and it kind of coincided nicely with, with discovering psychology and a lot of, uh, a lot of things started clicking in place after that. And I discovered that, Hey, you, you can be weird and, and study people and that's okay. <laughs> I had a, a typical experience in term. I was at Santa Cruz in California, which they have an amazing disc golf course. So I played a lot of disc golf and I went to my classes and went to a lot of uh, uh, bands to see a bunch of bands because they had a good music scene. Mm -hmm. Did either of you have a professor that inspired you throughout your term? Not, it doesn't have to just be undergrad. It could be for graduate school as well. 
Um, for undergrad, for sure. So obviously, I said that there's my my intro psych course, mm-hmm. which sort of veered or knocked me off of my my trek into to, to medicine. Doctor Doctor Pete Hurd, University of Alberta, was uh, that professor, and he his uh, classes were just as much a comedy act as they were a uh, a course. And I just love that he 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 so clearly loved the field that he was in. And I'm like I I was good at genetics and I was good at at biology but it was never fun to me it was just a thing that I was good at and he sort of showed me that no like this it's possible to just love the thing you're doing and I wouldn't be the professor I am now I think without Mm -hmm. um, having that same realization that you can you can genuinely enjoy the thing you're teaching and and doing as a field and this is going to be hokey and I'm putting on the spot but I'd say Stephen as well um, was a huge influence on, and he's rolling his eyes. <laughs> uh, no, he was a big influence on me because I was still in graduate school at the time, uh, very early in my career. And, uh, I was sort of facing down a department that was really a little nervous about, you know, they, good intention. They, they were worried that, uh, I was committing myself pretty early on to a sort of a weird line of research mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, Stephen Rayson and also my colleagues, uh, Sharon Roberts and Kathleen Gervasi were all very instrumental in helping me to um, get through grad school and, and recognize that, hey, you can, you can do weird research and that's okay. There's, there's still a career for, career for you out there. And uh, again, Stephen's been very instrumental, I think, perhaps more than anything in, in showing that um, if you're doing research you like and you're being productive, you can, you can get away with pretty much anything. You can, you can study whatever weird thing you like as long as you're productive and you uh, uh, Work your work your butt off for it. <laughs> Sorry to put you on the spot, Stephen. Ah, <laughs> uh, 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 the question: well, Do you have a mentor uh, for research? I mean, if you're doing research as an undergrad, you have to go. Usually, you have to go. You no, know, you do. I think almost everywhere have to go through a mentor. So, Faye Crosby at uh, Santa Cruz in the master's program. It was Bob Levine. Well. Robert Levine and Constance Jones, and then in the PhD program, that was Nigel Branscombe. Well, do y'all have any parting advice for anybody who may be interested in learning more about not just research, but anything in general? Advice for freshmen who may be having issues with something, because that's who we work a lot with, um, especially in our program. Um, or just anything like that before we end today's show? Um, I would say uh, this might be a little, little more, more general. Um, mm-hmm. Academia, learning in general, is a collaborative process. It really, there's this notion people have of the, the cloistered scholar, the scholar who, who sits in a library you know, by themselves late at night and just reads book by themselves. And that's, that's where knowledge comes from. And it's, it couldn't be further from the truth. Um, you, you commented on how many papers Stephen and I and, and our research team have published. And that has nothing to do with, with my being a good writer or Stephen being a, Stephen is a good writer. But um, I think the, the, the trick has been that we are an incredibly productive collaboration incredibly productive team, right? So when I, uh, when I sort of fumble the ball, Steven picks it up. When Steven sort of run out of energy, he kicks it off to me. And, and between that, we just get things done because we're constantly bouncing ideas off each other. We're keeping each other in check. We're, um, you know, 
between the two of us, we, we, we double the amount of literature we can cover. So whether it's, whether you're, you're professors collaborating on research projects or, or undergrads, uh, studying for an exam, right? You can get so much more done uh, by working together, right? If you write a set of research questions and someone else writes, or write a set of practice questions for a class and your friend writes a set of practice questions, you can pass them back and forth and, you know, you, you get the benefit of, of both of your work out of that. So uh, don't, don't treat academia as an individual pursuit or it's going to be a very long and sort of depressing career. Um, really seek out good collaborators and when you find them cling to them right a good collaborator is worth their weight in gold and uh, I, can't, I can't stress that enough my, my career would not be where it is now were it not for my finding and being very fortunate to find uh, a fantastic team of collaborators uh i'm gonna borrow some philosophy from burning man <laughs> which is uh no spectators allowed in you're not supposed to just sit back and watch at that event. You're supposed to go and contribute and do something. And I think college is the same way in terms of you, you get out of college what you put into it. If you just go to lectures and do nothing else, you're not going to get much out of it. If you go and make connections and join clubs and join a research lab or multiple research labs, you'll get more out of it. So you need to be the person to go out and make those connections Someone is not going to come and grab you. Yeah. You have to do it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, y'all have heard it here. Go out, get involved, learn what you can, do what you can do, follow academic support on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, YouTube. We're now on podcasts. For Rebecca Rison, I'm Jeremy Roberts. Thank you both so much for being with us today and this concludes another great episode of the chit chat have a good one bye bye